Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week I talked to John B. Cook, author of The Book of Weirdo, now available through Last Gasp Publishing, as well as via Amazon.com and all the other places you might find a book online. John chronicles the history of Weirdo Magazine, which ran from about 1981 to about 1991, first edited by Robert Crumb, and then by Peter Bagg, and then by Elaine Kaminsky-Crumb. As you can imagine, with the magazine with such a stellar lineup of editors, Weirdo published work by some of the greatest cartoonists of their time, as well as some of the most controversial cartoonists of the time. We delve into some of the uh, intriguing history of the magazine, including its place in the underground comics movement of the 1960s, its place in the zine movement movement in the 1980s, and a lot more context that gives an interesting story of the Times as well as the magazine itself. John's book is amazing, an impressive level of detail, as well as being tremendously readable as a chronicle of comics history and of the world that we are now somewhat past. I think you'll enjoy the interview. I really enjoy talking to John, as you can hear from our conversation. I really look up to him and the quality of work that he does. And again, the book is extraordinarily impressive, and I can't recommend it strongly enough. I'll provide a link in the show description so you can link out to it. I include some images and other details of the magazine in uh, show notes on comicscavalcade.tumblr.com. And of course, leave your feedback on iTunes and other places or Classic Comics Cavalcade. Thanks for listening this week. So, uh, congratulations on the new book. Obviously a labor of love. You've been working on it for a long time. Yeah, yeah, 12 years, yeah. 12 years? Yeah. Are you serious? Wow. Man. Well, I mean, it hasn't been, it hasn't been a straight 12 years. It's been on and off, on and off, on and off. I can see that because there's, there's notes in there and interviews from 2007 and stuff. That's amazing. So first of all, you know, you're one of my inspirations for getting back into comics and getting into comics journalism. So uh, I appreciate your, your place in my life as well. But why weirdo? Why have you been obsessed about this book or this comic for 12 years? It started with, uh, I did a, 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 a huge interview with Peter Bagg back in uh, 2007. Um, this was for my, uh, the top shelf production version of Comic Book Artist magazine. I wanted to do something that was complementary to that, that, that would, that would, you know, like the theme. And Peter was a, an editor of Weirdo magazine. And I got, I got all the issues and I started looking through them. So I, I interviewed uh, Robert Crumb and I interviewed Aileen, who is the other editor. They, they were the other two editors. Robert Crumb founded the magazine. Then I started asking contributors. I, I went into the magazine and noticed that there's you know at least 150 contributors to it that mm-hmm. do they you know for their memories and stuff like that. So I emailed them those those that I could contact and it was. Uh, they really responded really effusively. But then I, I, I put it aside. Uh, the recession hit. Uh, I had to go out and work. Uh, I had uh, domestic issues. And I ended that magazine and pretty much got out of comics for a little while. And then um, back in 2011, I started. The, I was going to start up Comic Book Artist again. And I really wanted to finish this. <laughs> and I went to MoCA and uh, announced that I was going to be doing this weirdo thing. So 
I would start it and then restart it, and I'd shelve it, then I'd restart it. But every at every stage, I would accumulate more and more testimonials. I mean, I would find more, more and more people, and who, you know, most often responded very effusively, and I either got them to write a testimonial, or if it was more convenient for their time, I would interview them and then distill a testimonial from that. No, I know. I just do do an interview through email. So it, it's a tremendous achievement. Two hundred fifty or so pages. There are interviews with literally everyone who had contributed. Who was still around? Otherwise, there's testimonies about people who passed away. I just think it's a remarkable work of comics history. For one thing, nobody had done anything on it. You know, mm. I mean, I wasn't particularly a nut for Weirdo Magazine. I mean, I remember seeing it back in the uh, '80s and the '90s, and I would pick up some issues. I guess that the covers would appeal to me. I guess it was pretty much down mm. to that. But it wasn't. It was Peter Bag's work that got me into it and then it, i realized there was a niche that was like nobody had done anything on it and i couldn't mm -hmm. find anything i thought well and it was especially the response of the uh, contributors they were just like they were nuts about the magazine they were nuts about their time there about contributing to this it was it's really a cartoonist cartoonist magazine and yeah i first discovered it when i was in college i entered college in 1984 and there's a few things that struck me at the time about it first is that it was it reminded me a lot of the zines that I was reading at the time. It was very kind of, had a haphazard feel to it that was very well curated. And it felt like any page you flipped could deliver you something you wouldn't have expected before. And the other, it was very much an antidote to the Reagan era. You know, this was not morning in America. This is the flip side of our country. And this is a somewhat broken state we were in at that point. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, it's no, yeah, it's no uh, accident that the first issue of Weirdo came out literally within six weeks of uh, Reagan's inauguration. And it was something that in that very first issue of Weirdo, uh, Crum had called, called it a new era of bared fangs. And, uh, <laughs> I think he was right. You know, I th no, I know he was right. I, I lived through that era, too. Yeah, it was a tough time. But, you know, like underground comics had pretty much vanished. But, you know, there was a lot of stuff that was going on in direct market, but there wasn't any real successor to underground comics. And I always mm -hmm. loved underground comics and except Weirdo and Raw. And Raw was expensive. It was, you know, you could argue it was pretentious. It was just very ambitious. It was wildly ambitious. And mm -hmm. and Weirdo was kind of like the, the flip side of that. It was street level. It's proletariat. Proletariat's you know? a good word for it. Yeah. Yeah, Raw always felt some somehow more elite, so much more New York curated, beautiful yeah. art, as opposed to something very street level that I could have imagined my friends and myself contributing to. Mm. Yeah, and it's a very, somebody pointed out that it was a uh, East Coast, West Coast thing, kind of, too. Mm -hmm. um, a real, there was, you know, San Francisco was, was the epicenter of underground comics. You know, so but and also there were a couple of the revolutions that were taking place within comics that didn't uh, still haven't gotten a lot of uh, attention, enough attention, in my opinion. There's mini comics and uh, st uh, street comics that were coming out of that. Uh, pardon me, that were coming out of San Francisco, particularly Berkeley with mm -hmm. uh, Bruce and Duncan and uh, Ace Backwards. There was that there was these uh, mini comics, uh, which was a. Uh, this whole subculture of people doing handmade, homemade comics and go running out and Xeroxing them and then swapping them with, with other people who are interested in them. And, 
And then, of course, there was there was the punk scene that had risen out of New York with, uh, you know, Peter Bag and, and literally out of punk magazine, John right. Holmstrom's magazine. And so there was there. And there was also an L.A. thing of uh, uh, Raymond Pettibone and the uh, Black Flag. And, you know, it, it was just in the air, man. There it was. All, I mean, it all there, gelled together. It all gelled together. I mean, I think there's this <clears throat> there's nostalgia for you know older generations of comic fans or just fans in general for the work that they did in their time frame, not realizing that every generation is going to be creative in their own ways. My generation, yeah, we were we were zining like crazy and trading with each other and um, just producing our own stories, comics, whatever, um, and just didn't really care. We just trade them amongst ourselves. And this magazine kind of seemed like a kind of collation of all that, of this whole scene that I felt like I was part of when I was in my college years. Mm. I think it was really surprising is you think Robert Crumb, who was one of the founding fathers of uh, underground comics and the guy who created Zap Comics, which is arguably the first underground comic book. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the guy who's always been at the forefront of, of, of the scene that you would think he would go off and get his Zap Comics cohorts and veterans, these underground veterans. And but he, I talked to Robert Williams uh, the other day. Um, I called him to find out what he thought about the book because I heard that it was by rumor. I heard that he he had good things to say about the book. And me, I'm always on the prowl for a good quote. <laughs> uh, I called him and and he brought up this. Uh, he also worked on. He was one of the. He is one of the Zap Collective. You know, he was right. one of very very few people who are allowed into the the zap confines and there were seven cartoonists who were involved but anyway he said that the book of weirdo was a testament to crumb's generosity of spirit and Mm -hmm. that immediately struck me as being absolutely Mm -hmm. true Mm -hmm. one thing that people really don't know i think enough about robert crumb is okay they know about the eccentricities they know about the uh, politically incorrect behavior and the his uh, sexual obsessions and his oddball family and everything like that but he's an incredibly generous guy and he re- he really opened up those pages to an entirely new generation of cartoonists um and just welcomed them in and he was a a very strong uh, correspondent you know he would constantly be in touch suggesting gently suggesting how to improve stories and to give it another whack and uh, you're getting their kid the attaboys that he would give and they were sincere you can still if you read the testimonials you'll see that a lot of these burgeoning cartoonists were just floored by that this this great great i i mean i i call him the greatest cartoonist in the world would take the time care care enough about he puts his ego aside you know well, I- with that, he did some of his greatest work, I think, for Weirdo. Uncle Bob's Midlife Crisis is just a, an amazing strip. A murky Morcoid story is really interesting. He did a half dozen pieces at least that I think are among the best things he ever did. Mm, I, I agree. I, th- I think, you know, I was actually debating with him the other day. I, I interviewed him on, on Thursday because I'm, I'm going to have because I'm copying you, Jason. I'm doing my own podcast <laughs> called, <laughs> called Subterranean Dispatch. Anyway, I'm starting that, and I was just editing it uh, this morning. But Outstanding. Wow. Wow. Mm. Is, this gonna, is the crumb one going to be your first episode, by yeah, the way? Yeah, why, why not, you know? Yeah, <laughs> why not? Exactly. <laughs> I, I agree. I, I think uh, that uh, Uncle Bob's Midnight Crisis, I think it's an absolute classic because it's so... Well, there's no reason I need to tell you why, because, and he was like, huh, really? You think so? Really? Huh? 
but he, there was just like an explosion of really great work that came out of him. And there was some mundane work, and there was also truly controversial stories that were, com- I mean, in my opinion, were complete misfires. Uh, I don't know if you're leading up to that, but... Uh, well, I think we should talk about that, yeah. What would happen if the blacks took over America? What would happen if the Jews took over America? Which are, yes, yeah, still very difficult to read, even seen through the eye of irony. Yeah, and to our listeners, it was not the blacks. He used the N-word. Um, okay. And, you know, rather yeah. largely. It was very angry, he had a very angry statement to say about the United States. And that story was taken at face value by white supremacists who reprinted the story in uh, their newsletter in the 90s, a couple of years after Weirdo was done. It was already you know, put to bed and finished. That started a whole controversy that uh, the New, York, New Yorker magazine commented on. And the San Francisco Examiner uh, came after him asking, asking him, like, why'd you do this? And uh, he still doesn't have an adequate answer other than it's a compulsion of his to do and that he feels that people just m- misunderstand it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a little I'm a little mixed on that. I mean, here I is. I, I did print the uh, last page on that. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to shy away from the history of it. His well, what does he say when you talk to him about it? He said he had to do it. It was a compulsion uh, that. You know, he thinks that people uh, misunderstood his intent, but that he couldn't apologize for it in a certain way because he, you know, it was a compulsion. Yeah. And that's that's what he says about a, a, a good, good amount of his work. He just has to get it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's a good metaphor for a lot of the work in the magazine, too. A lot of work just needed to be people need to get it out. It's kind of a characteristic, especially of the bag issues, that there's a lot of very kind of self lacerating work in there yeah yeah and then um with aileen uh, uh her tenure had a lot of uh confessional confessional comics you know which were her forte one of the great cartoonists for autobiographical cartooning you know yeah uh, that's what i think i think it was a haven it was uh it was a refuge it was a place to go for uh and there's never been a magazine that's really replaced it and there mm-hmm. wasn't before and there wasn't one after and but it, it's it's very much of its time it died right after uh reagan uh left office you know it wasn't long it was 1990 was the last issue until aileen did a uh just a one shot basically the last issue three years later right when i think of the magazine i think of crumbs work and i think of a lot of the confessional work eleanor Northless gets a lot of you mention in your book I went back and reread the issues that contain her work, and it, I can see why it was so controversial. It was extremely confessional, um, almost kind of nonlinear, and like this primal scream sort of comics. Mm. Yeah, yeah, the, the remarkable stuff. Uh, I mean, she's one of the most enigmatic cartoonists to uh, ever been on the American scene. Uh, people don't know where she came from and don't know where she went. Her cartoons, cartoon, her comics were reviled because. She was a very, very crude artist. She really wasn't a cartoonist in the technical sense. I mean, one of the stories is about her getting raped. Um, mm-hmm. And it's done mm-hmm. in almost a stick figure way. It's, ve- it's very effective. It's very visceral. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I find it remarkable. I never found anything wrong with it other than it was a revelation. And boy, uh, that's, uh, that's one of the interesting stories about the Book of Weirdo is, you know, thank God she had an odd 
last name because I could not find her anywhere. And I was seeing mm-hmm. everywhere. And I found it was in an obituary of what turned out to be her mother. Anyway, it gave me a clue of how to find her. And I found her. She was li- she's living to this day. She's living in the southern part of India. And, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. And she's lived there for 30 years. And she has not picked up a pen to do cartooning. Though I would kind of bet that this book might get, get it going again because she has not received any attention that, that uh, you, know, you know, other than I knew that Ivan Brunetti wanted to find her and he actually, I helped him out, helped him, you know, I, whatever. I introduced <laughs> him. Get right. Him. I got him. So. No, I think <laughs> out of all the cartoonists, she was the one that really stood out at me as being so raw and so real. And I think that's part of what is inspiring about reading a magazine like Weirdo is you will stumble across this work that is just so different that it kind of stops you cold. You know, her lack of precision or lack of artfulness in a way made it more powerful because it feels like just a friend talking to you, not even a friend, some stranger talking to you in, in this obscure language. And you have to kind of piece out what she means. But when you do, the full impact of it really plays out. I would. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Then there's the story of Dory Sita. Mm-hmm. Dory Sita was a bookkeeper at uh, Last Gasp. Last Gasp was the publisher of Weirdo, and they are the publisher of my book. Baba Ron. Uh, she worked for him. Um, he's the publisher, and uh, she wanted to get her comics. She had been doing unknown to a lot of uh, a lot of people within, certainly within Last Gasp. Didn't know that she was. Uh, doing comics at night and doing her own thing. And she submitted this story under the name David Sita um, initially uh, and thinking that by masquerading as a man that she was going to be able to get the story in easier or something. Crumb called the number, the number that was on it and uh, started a conversation and a a friendship with her. And uh, he published a lot of her work and he was a champion of hers and her her abilities just were unbelievably. She improved so fast and so furiously, and she was a hell of a storyteller, and it was funny as hell, and it was frank. I mean, after all, I don't know. Can you swear on this? Yes. Okay. Uh, the the name of the art uh, we did a we have a big section in there is I don't fuck my dog because mm-hmm. there's this impression that she gives through one story that it gets mm-hmm. sexual with her. Doberman Pinscher. <laughs> she doesn't. She, doesn't, she didn't fuck her dog. <laughs> but, um, that was literally the first story I ever read by her. The first issue of Weirdo that I read. So it was like, wow, this is very out there. But she was a fascinating character. I mean, talk a little bit about how she was. Uh, the, she almost bothered people because she was so much of an exhibitionist, which is ironic considering the amount of exhibitionism in the comics being presented. Hmm. Yeah, she was a, a, a vivacious, a totally vivacious personality. I mean, she uh, she was also a big presence in uh, San Diego Comic Con. She was a big presence in this in the San Francisco scene. Just a remarkable personality who didn't take care of herself, and she had uh, severe respiratory problems. And what I would argue is the biggest event that took place in the weirdo community, which was pretty large by that time, mm-hmm. is she died at the in in her mid thirties of. Uh, I think it was respiratory issues. I, I was just talking to uh, to Robert, and his memory is that she had a car accident. She was involved in the car accident first. She was hit by a car, but then uh, died of respiratory issues. But anyway, she died way too young. And 
greatly. She's been greatly missed. Yeah, it seems like she was really just becoming a, a great cartoonist, um, mm. evolving into being one of the, the great cartoonists, and we lost her too soon. The revelation reading the early issues was Terry Boyce and her comics about her pet penis. And I thought it was hilarious how she her life went a completely different direction. Maybe not hilarious, considering the connection to Dory, but interesting how... Um, she doesn't really swear off these those days, but uh, they're not the center of her life in any way. I don't know. She swears off her life, but she she did. And at one stage, she uh, expressed uh, complete regret. That was the turning point for her. She was a very, she was very much involved in the San Francisco scene as well. And she's in. There's one thing that uh, Weirdo Magazine had, much to uh, the dismay of any number of readers, was that in the first nine issues under Robert Crumb's tenureship, there were these things called fumettis, uh, photo funnies, these stories that were uh, basically comic book stories, but told through photographs and, and, you know, posing, you know, whatever, doing a story. You know, the readers hated them generally almost almost to a person. <laughs> there were very few people who did, except, you know, and Crumb is very disappointed. But anyway, Terry was one of the uh, one of the models as with, the, with her best friend, Dory Sita. She was a, a free spirit and her co- comics were pretty not liked i would say because mm-hmm. uh, it was so well, i don't know why because but they were very very cheerful and they were mm-hmm. very very cheerful yeah you know you know crumb had said that uh, women didn't like didn't like her comics i don't know why but anyway she was so moved by the the passing of her best friend that she uh discovered christ and she became a born-again christian which led her into ministry and she wrote a letter to Mary Fleener, who's another cartoonist, she denounced her own cartooning days and said she burned all her work. Mm-hmm. And she completely turned her back on it. And I was able to, to finally, I think it was through Instagram, I was finally uh, able to find Terry. You know why? Because the, there's a letter con- where Mary Fleener and uh, editor Aileen uh, Kaminsky-Crum, the third editor of Weirdo, they printed Terry Boyce's letter. Which mm. she renounced all this stuff. They were somewhat, well, I would say unkind to her. So what? She's had a spiritual awakening. But they, they reprinted this uh, religious uh, imagery there, illustration, and it had her her new newly married name. And that so that was the key for me to be able to, I mean, a lot of this book is detective work. And I just mm-hmm. spent just on the internet, just, just searching and searching and searching, getting, getting deeper and, you know, like page 75 of Google. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just going and going and going deeper and deeper. And I eventually found her. And I was, you know, sent her messages uh, over a period of time, hearing nothing in return. Um, but then uh, she responded. People can, who buy the book can read her testimony. It's not even really a testimony. She sent me an email back. But then um, email back saying that, you know, you can use this email for my in lieu of a testimony. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've moved on pretty much is basically what she said. She remembered back, uh, the old days with some fondness, and she misses. She still misses Dory. And then, j- almost just before I went to press, she sent me. She got in touch with me again, and she uh, sent me a, b- a bunch of pictures. And it, w- it was just wonderful. I was able to use them of uh, Dory looking delightfully cute, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and as Terry mm-hmm. Boyce looked really, really cute, you know, and it's really nice and cheerful and sweet. It's a nice testimony, and I, I hope uh, Terry likes the, the book. Right. One of the hi- it was one of the highlights of the book for me, actually, is is kind of reading that 
her, her story arc, she kind of has come, I think, gotten happier with having a little bit of fame, not fame, notoriety, uh, the mm-hmm. history of that anyway coming out. Yeah, it's interesting, too. There's really, like, three eras of the magazine. Elaine Crumb's work is a lot more focused on some of the more famous, well-known cartoonists. You know, there's Griffith and Kim Deitch and others in there. Did she intentionally move the magazine to be a little more... And, of course, she brought in Justin Green, too, for his first new story in several years. Did she intentionally move the magazine into being maybe a little more kind of classically oriented in terms of the underground cartoonists? Uh, she actively sought work from Kim and, and from Justin. Yes, yes. I mean, Justin Green, is, as a cartoonist, means everything to her. I mean, you know, it was Binky Brown uh, meets the Holy Virgin Mary, which is a groundbreaking comic book on its own, mm-hmm. about uh, a truly uh, confessional comic book that absolutely inspired her. And she actively uh, sought his uh, participation. And, and she's also had a lot of uh, girlfriends, such as Carol Tyler, who is uh, Justin's wife. And, and Carol, I think that was some of her first published work was in Weirdo. And she's, you know, become a wonderful graphic novelist. And, uh, of course, there's Diane New- uh, Newman, who is uh, Bill Griffith's wife. But I, I don't know why I introduced her like that, because that's sexist. <laughs> because she's a wonderful, <laughs> she's a wonderful cartoonist in her own right. just mentioned but Griffith, so. Yeah, right. So anyway, uh, so there was this real influx. I actually counted all the names of, uh, I mean, pardon me, all the all the genders, you know, and I just and I found out that it's in a it's in a footnote in the book. I think, you know, uh, pardon me, Aileen uh, brought in twice as many female cartoonists, women cartoonists into it as as Peter Bagg and uh, substantially more than her husband. That's something I really appreciated too. Much more now, I have to say, than when I was 19 or 20 reading these magazines. It really gave the magazine a real sense of balance and made it feel much more contemporary, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it was, you know, groundbreaking in its own way. And yet, ironically, I wonder, uh, I don't think it could it could survive nowadays in this, in this age of political correctness um because the magazine was decidedly not politically correct in a lot of, a lot of ways <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways i could not even because of being at the age that i am that i wouldn't even perceive as politically incorrect and mm-hmm. i don't think it i don't particularly adhere to political correctness so much as um you know just respect uh people's decisions in their own life and their their own choices and and <clears throat> In the genders that they are. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I did ask, uh, I guess I'm, I'm forcing an issue here. I mean, I, I, cause I talked to, uh, Robert, is he concerned about the me too era coming back, coming for him with pitchforks and torches? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, he does have a great fear of that. He, he has a great fear of being, um, misinterpreted and he doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I mean, he wants everyone to like him just like, in, just like most of us, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't tend to think of Crumb in that way. You know him so well as a person. Yeah, huh. Yeah, just last week I was recording a podcast about Dave Sim, and my friend and I kind of came to the opposite conclusion, that Sim just didn't care what people thought of him at this point. But it's interesting to hear that Crumb still does, despite his you know, great reputation for everything he's achieved in his life. I, to me, he's one of the immortals, but he still cares about legacy and how he'll be remembered. Oh, he's achingly human. I mean, he really is. He's just, you know, his problems are problems of abundance now. And, you know, when back in the winter's uh, California days, when he was doing Weirdo magazine, they really lived hand to mouth. I mean, he literally would do cartoons 
for firewood to keep mm. to keep the house heated. And uh, I, I'm really surprised how this this great cartoon is so. Many, many people had highly revered during those years, during the 80s. He really had a, a humble life. And I think I hope that's apparent in the book, too, is we really delve into the Winters community. We really delve into where he lived and the neighbors and the, and his friends and the people who also appeared in the Fumettis. And... Well, John, one of the things that struck me is about your, the detail of your research is bringing in the whole story of Coevolution Quarterly that Crumb was part of. Right, right. Something I knew nothing about. Right, right. Well, it wasn't, it was uh, Winds of Change. Winds of Change, excuse me. Yeah, when they go, that's a part of the community. I mean, they really became a part of it. You know, they became actively involved in their community. And they were like almost much of their peers. They were a liberal, bleeding heart liberal environmentalist and had, you know, a lot of left wing concerns. And uh, he got actively involved. And that's one of the reasons, I think. I mean, he kind of argues with me about it, but I'm kind of convinced that Winds of Change had something to do with Weirdo in the sense of that he he was literally involved in production, mm-hmm. um, that he uh, worked in Paste Up. When Paste Up Night came, he was involved there. He was an illustrator for it, did fantastic stuff. And it was the, the editing by committee, uh, his frustrations dealing with lefty, you know, hypersensitive, uh, let's make sure that everyone, you know, that we're completely fair, I guess the politically correct kind of, kind of attitude, that kind of thing. And that frustrated him. So, uh, he wanted to, he wanted nothing to do with it after a while. He wanted to go off and do his own thing and it would turn out to be weirdo. Yeah. Weirdo was a amazing magazine. One of the things that I especially loved was the revivals of old comic art. Eugene Teal pages, for example, are just other literally otherworldly well he did one strip right yeah frogs frogs sunday funny yeah which is probably the most influential strip that appeared in weirdo people just were completely whacked out about it and it was a somebody had mentioned it i think kim Dietrich. somebody had recently mentioned that it's it's three tiers so it's probably three separate comic strips and Mm -hmm. it's absolutely surreal and and bizarre and uh, it's about talking frogs um, and it was done by a, uh, I think by the time they discovered it in the late 70s or sometime in the 70s, I think it was Roger Brand, who was a, uh, whatever, he was a sometime comic book artist and underground and also mainstream stuff. He had discovered it, I think, on a, on a, on a bus, on a bus in Oakland. And it was found out through, and Kim, uh, when Kim Deitch went looking for the origins of this thing, he found out it was by a, a 70 or 80 year old black cartoonist guy whom nobody knew anything about other than that he did uh, posters you know flyers for local businesses and for barter for trade and stuff like that so interesting and there's the work by macedonio garcia the prisoner in the california jails also kind of outsider art was fascinating that kind of get this portrait of, of the life from there as well yeah was, yeah macedonia was a it was macedonia okay yeah, uh, yeah, I was. I, that's how I was assumed to pronounce it. I never, I never spoke to him in person, but it was nice to to, to finally find him. Uh, he was long out of prison. Uh, he was out of, I think, when he he passed away. I don't know exactly when he passed away. Uh, no, I like 2014. I think around there, 2015, 2014. But anyway, uh, he'd have been 28 years, 27 years out of prison. But okay. uh, yeah, and he was just. Uh, it was it was fun to to find him and. I was sad that he passed away. But uh, 
Mark Arnold did a uh, feature on uh, Weirdo Magazine in 2015 or something. Uh, and uh, it was for Back Issue Magazine. And it was great. I mean, he was able to get some. I, I actually quoted quoted Mark's, Mark's piece. And so that was great. Oh, I missed that one. I got to pick that one up. Do you feel like Fanographics was trying to subvert Weirdo with their takeoff magazines? No, I think they took off from it. Uh, no, I don't think anybody, no. But I think Gary was given the, Gary Groth, the publisher of uh, Fanographics, I think he was given the opportunity to publish Weirdo. I think so. I, You know, honestly, Gary was one of the few people that, and I've typically always been able to, I'm, I'm still slightly annoyed. <laughs> I wasn't... Uh, able to interview him about weirdo magazine but uh, i couldn't i couldn't get through for some reason because there was all those magazines that they put out graphic story monthly centrifugal uh, bumble puppy always brings that up and now joe sacco the great joe sacco the journalist cartoonist was the editor right right <laughs> so i was wondering if they were intended to take the the uh, they seem to be exist in this netherworld between Weirdo and Raw, I guess. Uh, yeah, I think there's an inspiration there. I mean, that, that's my take. I, I devote a, a big feature in the back of the book to not wannabes, but uh, I, I call them the spawn of Weirdo. Yeah. And I think the problem with a lot of those, uh, I don't think a lot of them were successful because they weren't funny. Or, or, you know, they, I don't, I don't know what it is. There's something about Weirdo is it was really gut, <laughs> you know, it was really funny. I mean, a lot of it was really absurd. I mean, there's the one page, uh, uh, the uh, Gilgan's Gilgan's Island takeoff. That's mm-hmm. just about them fucking and sucking each other. <laughs> and it's so funny. I mean, and it's really, uh-huh. it's well written. I mean, it's funny, and it's uh, the one shot thing that uh, Lynn von Shing. Uh, jeez, I can't even pronounce the last. She's now known as Lynn van von Pang. She just did this wonderful. Uh, she was a punk singer in a in a in a in a, in a rock and roll in a punk band and uh, she did this on the side and it's really well drawn i mean just want more she'll be coming i think she's coming to uh we're at the east coast comic con in mid-may in may 18th the saturday i think 16th or the 18th east coast comic con is a caucus new jersey we're having a the official uh, release party for for the book of weirdo and uh, we're going to have a bunch of uh, weirdos show up oh so, wow come down including uh kim deach and peter bag of course is going to be coming kaz is coming and uh carol tyler is coming and uh, so it's going to be a it's going to be a lot of fun yeah i was just talking to peter bag just a couple of weeks ago at emerald city comic-con and i think the thing that struck me the most is just how far away this work was it just feels like everyone's kind of well, uh, obviously, 35 years later, life goes on. How do you how do you look back on that this time? And do you think there's a chance that anything like Weirdo could exist today? Yeah, of course, I, I do. I do think. Uh, I don't know if it would be distributed a nationally distributed magazine. Um, I think I think it does exist. I think it it's it remains. It's always been in existence in a certain mm-hmm. way. There was a subculture. This. This, you know, whether it's mini comics or just, you know, these handmade things that people compulsively have to do. And that's one one of the reasons I love, just love comics, because it's, there's just something about it. I mean, there's just, I do not understand partly, I mean, I understand the appeal of comics in that they're colorful, they're garish, they're, 
They're they're easy to read. I mean, kind of understand some fundamental things, but I can't understand why it possesses me so, and mm. why it possesses so many people. Why it's it's something. I'm I'm a grown man. I mean, I I, I can separate the the silliness of comic books and superheroes and that kind of stuff. But I'm as passionate about comics as I was when I discovered them. Really, when I became a fan, when I was twelve, and it's. There is something about it. And if you can retain that, you know, there's always going to be a weirdo. There's always, because there's always weirdos, you know? And anyone who wants to bring a carrot, you know, uh, pick up a pencil and, 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 and draw these, you know, strange stories and get them out, you know, get them out of themselves. Carry, it's a thing to bring out, you know, like we're getting around this theme of compulsion. It's just like something mm-hmm. you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that there was a regular anthology. You know, there was something that I didn't really bring up with uh, with Robert uh, Crumb on Thursday, but I wanted to, but I didn't, because I didn't want to get into an argument. I guess I don't, I don't even know. Well, I don't even know why I didn't. But Art Spiegelman, his memory of Weirdo, the the when when Crumb was first talking to him about Weirdo, was to do a telephone directory kind of thing of where he would publish everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything, whatever came in. And that had great appeal to speak about. Oh, he's never helmed anything like that himself. He said it, it had great appeal to him. I like the idea myself. You know, I, I, I wouldn't helm something like that either because you're never going to make a dime from doing something like that. It would be just crazy. But if I was to get rich, maybe. But anyway, <laughs> so that would be the ultimate weirdo thing. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I like that it's, it was curated. And I like that there was a, a mind behind it preventing us from having too much of the stuff that would kind of be repetitious, I guess. But yeah, I think the, the idea of having somewhere something where anyone could contribute anything would be really powerful. Of course, that, okay. that existed the, too. People were just trading zines and stuff. And a very important thing, though, is what it was. What made them all quit was that they were editors and that they really did pick and choose. And when they rejected. You know, they rejected certain veteran underground cartoonists uh, who were absolutely livid with them afterwards mm. for being rejected. And um, that was the the absolutely mind-numbingly exhausting aspect of, of being an editor of Weirdo of an anthology of this sort was uh, rejection. It was rejecting uh, people. It was just very hard to... It's hard. It's a hard thing to do. I've been an editor. I am an editor. I know what it, it's. It's a hard thing to do, and it particularly affected them. I think because of the nature of the cartoonists they were dealing with, who were by by their nature they were sensitive, and they were exposing some of their a lot of their creative impulses and all that. Yeah, a lot of them were first first time creators too, so it was even more meaningful to them. Yeah, yeah, interesting challenge. I can see it taking a toll on someone like. Well, all these people, right? Yeah, you know, and it's also thankless. They, I mean, they didn't make a dime from it. You know, they, I mean, I do not conceive of uh, how Robert got uh, initiated uh, Weirdo in the sense of that there was no share of profits. There was really no profits. It was they got page rates. Almost the entire budget of the magazine went right back to the contributors. It was uh, what did they have? A twenty-five dollar page rate. I mean, was, you said 50, I think, in the book. Was it, it was 50? Just, yeah, 50. It's still, still, you know, next to nothing, right? Well, yeah. uh, frankly, you know, and yet, more, you know, a little Michael like your magazines Dugan, as well. So uh, go ahead. So Michael Dugan, uh, the Seattle uh, based uh, cartoonist, he shares an anecdote in the, uh, 
in the book of this vivid memory of like he just had a, a 10 page story published in weirdo and he had a check for 250 dollars and it was like holy moly and it was you know back then in the early 90s and the late 80s that was a you know for a, a destitute cartoonist that was a lot of money <laughs> he remembers how vivid it was and that's pretty neat. You know, uh, Michael Dugan, uh, uh, who is fondly recalled by people back in the day and who was really a wonderful cartoonist and storyteller, he disappeared from the scene. And uh, I found him. Uh, he's running a, uh, American, a American coffee cafe in Japan, in a small village in Japan. And I wow. Found, that, that's where some of these people end up. <laughs> you know? Wow. John, you know, I just finished the book about comics in the 1990s for Tomorrow's, okay. and that was a crazy amount of work, and, like, it consumed my life for four years, basically. I can't imagine doing a work like yours, though, where you're doing a lot of first-line research. That was, It's just a tremendous achievement. When you finally get somebody to respond to you, it's like, kind of, it's not like Christmas, but it's like, there's something really like, oh, oh, I got it. It, it, it. it appeals to my collector's mentality of being able to ooh, have every one. And when I was able to find, you know, Michael Dugan, I was like, oh, finally, you know. And he, though he wrote me a, gee whiz, I don't even know, 7,000 word essay. Uh, it, was, it was the longest essay of all the testimonials. Damn straight, I'm going to print every word, not only because it was such a thrill to find him, but because he shared so much about the Seattle scene that I, I didn't otherwise know. I mean, it was great history. And I mean, that's one thing that, that Crumb says. It's as much about the history of uh, the 80s, you know, the mm -hmm. book, as it is about one single magazine, you know. That's not my fault. You know, that's that's because the people, they revealed so much about that decade. It was an interesting decade for comics, maybe one of the most, I think, yeah, I think the most exciting decade for comics. Yeah, in a lot of ways it was. In a lot of ways it was. Uh, certainly foundational as well. Really set a lot of the tone of what came in the 1990s. Definitely kind of showed that there was still life in the idea of underground cartooning, that people sharing their self-expression through comics could be a very powerful medium. Weirdo was at the center of, of all that. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And Rob, Rob was there too. The natural comparison, there's almost impossible not to compare the two. And I found that was it the second se sentence in the Wikipedia pages, you know, that compares the two, a counterpoint to two weirdo Raw was. Mm -hmm. uh, Raw, uh, again, you know, that was just, that's, that was just a part, that was, that's the other, other bookend um, as far as alternative cartooning goes. And, uh, to me, the big, one of the big differences that Raw, was like reviewed in every issue of the comics journal as a new object of art. It's this brilliant new drop. Mm. And, yeah, and you know, Weirdo was this magazine was basically ignored. And because it was in a way living in the shadows, it was more freedom, less attention. And it just felt more primal. Yeah. I mean, it's just, had a, yeah, it had a, you know, yeah, right. You know, an interesting common man kind of appeal to it, but you know, I, I hope people don't walk away thinking that uh, I got a bad attitude about Raw. I mean, because, you know, <laughs> no. Raw is a really important magazine, and Spiegelman is a friend of mine, and uh, he's been, been extremely helpful. I was able to uh, have lunch with uh, Robert Crumb at the beginning of March, and uh, that's all because art helped me out. That's great, and he's a part of the book, too. And uh, Raw, you couldn't have Raw without Weirdo, and Weirdo without Raw in a certain way. 
I'll always, I'll always say that. Uh, I don't know if I could do the same kind of book on on Raw. For one thing, uh, uh, Bill Car- Cartopolis, Cartopolis is uh, has already done it, though it, it's uh, on the internet and it's actually not being hosted right now. But you know, I'm I urge him to do a, I do a public appeal at this right now. Uh, please, Bill, get get a Raw book out. But I don't know if I could do the same myself, but just because there's a different level of enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, a lot of these guys mm-hmm. really didn't go anywhere afterwards, uh, necessarily, or they've had struggle. But boy, they, they just had, it was a, the right time for them. Yeah. Well, I think it's a little bit of a head versus heart kind of thing, too. You know, uh, where yeah, it was I think, a... yeah that's, a, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And yet there was some very heartfelt stuff in Raw as well. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And some just some of the greatest cartooning of its era. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there was Mouse. I mean, and that's that's an unequivocated, unequivocal masterpiece. There's no doubt about that. You know. Well, congratulations again, John. I'm really excited for Good. you. It was a delight reading this book. And I, I enjoyed not just the testimonials, but the history and the context you gave for it. It really is a valuable book. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And thanks for doing your homework. This has been a very good, uh, very good interview. So I, I appreciate it very much. Oh, thank you.